0: Most of us like life to be clear, finite, measurable and manageable. It gives us a sense of agency in the world, it gives us a sense that we can be competent and get things done in life. We want to do right, generally speaking, and to satisfy whatever the demands are of the task of being right. So the story that Jesus tells in this little passage is a little bit problematic for us. But before we get to that, we meet the lawyer who is there not to learn from Jesus, but the text tells us he's there to test Jesus. He's not a neutral player in this. He has no genuine inquiry. He's kind of like a journalist talking to a politician and they want to catch him out on something. So this guy is trying to find out whether Jesus is as smart as the lawyer feels he himself is. Whenever we approach a person in order to test them, we kind of are seeking to measure them according to our pre-existing matrix of values. What's right, what's wrong, what's important, what's not important, all that kind of stuff. What's acceptable, what's unacceptable. We have made the decision regarding what's good, what's wise, what's appropriate, and we're seeking to see how the other person measures up to our standard. We do it all the time in all sorts of subtle ways and conversations as we meet people, as we're sussing people out. And that's kind of the spirit in which this lawyer approaches Jesus. He's not, open. He's not genuinely inquiring, he's not seeking to learn, he's not shifting his assumptions. Uh, he was using his standard to measure Jesus, not seeking to learn what might be another way of doing life. And he's not very interested in Jesus either, it would seem. I think he's wanting to find out enough about Jesus so that he can put him in a little pigeonhole. You know how we pigeonhole people? We meet them and after a few lines of conversation we can slowly start to build a profile of them. Oh, they're a conservative or liberal or progressive or fundamentalist or you know, coalition voter, or left-leaning, greeny, tree-hugging whatever, and we, we kind of ah, oh, they're one of those ah, oh, they'll probably like this music or go to those places or and we, we save time in a sense by making a whole range of assumptions that go with the picture we have of that kind of person I mean, maybe you don't do that because you're very mature but believe me, a lot of people out there are doing that And um, I think, again, it helps us categorize someone, already know what they're like, and and in a sense, quarantine ourselves from any meaningful interaction with them. Jesus is very clever when he responds to the lawyer. He says to the lawyer, Well, you're so smart. How do you read it? He doesn't say you're so smart, but he, he turns the question back to the lawyer. He doesn't try to answer in a way that satisfies the lawyer. He says, You tell me how you read it. And then he endorses the lawyer's answer. Good answer. Well done. And then the lawyer wants to go one more. That was his mistake. He wants to justify himself. So, who is my neighbour? Tell me exactly what I need to do so that I might do it. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, much of this story could be uh, lost on us because we weren't part of the culture of the day, but Interestingly, both the priest and the Levite did what was right according to the culture and the religion of the day because they were under obligation to be ritually clean. It was their job to do all sorts of holy tasks, and in order to do those properly, they had to be ritually clean. The Samaritan, sorry, the man who'd been beaten up was left half dead, which effectively means he looked dead. So if you were were walking past from a distance you couldn't tell whether he was dead or alive and the priests and the Levite couldn't approach a dead body. So they were under risk of becoming ritually unclean, so it was their responsibility that they were obligated not to attend to the person on the road. So we could miss that. We could think, oh they're sn- snooky religious people, da 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 but according to the system of the day, they did what was right. They were responsible, they were seeking to love God and love their community by staying in a position where they were clean enough to do their role as priest and Levite. What this story does is kind of uh, open up some deeper questions. Being obedient to the letter of the law Is often a way of behaving that is self-protecting. So when we when we listen to the letter of the law and we make that the parameters for our behaviour, in a sense what we're doing is seeking to get it right. And getting it right is often an expression of our fear of getting it wrong. You get the subtlety in that? We want to get it right. Why do you want to get it right? What's so important about getting it right? Well, because I don't want to get it wrong. Well, what happens if you get it wrong? we don't know, but you don't want to get it wrong. Our intent is to satisfy the rules and obey the law so that we can protect ourselves from the consequences of not doing that. Can you see that it's kind of self-protecting? It's subtle, but it's self-protecting. And... I've got to say, I don't think that's a bad thing in and of itself, but it's a thing, and it's a thing to be aware of. As a general rule, you should be encouraged to want to stay out of trouble and obey the law. Please don't hear me saying other than that. And yet, it is a self-protecting thing. If you obey the law and someone is not happy, uh, then it's, it's not your fault. It's the law's fault. See, if you obey the law and you do everything right according to the law and yet somebody's really miffed about that, you can say, hey, not my fault. I was just doing what the law says I have to do. We have this at home with the kids. You're not allowed to eat food except in the kitchen. If they come out of the kitchen and they're eating in the lounge and go, get Oh, it's not, not my fault. That's the law. You know, that's the law of the household. You've got to go in there, I can't change it, it's out of my hands, you know? A more serious uh, example of this is often in today's failure of leadership in all sorts of areas. Leaders uh, doing that which is clearly unfair, for example, with their travel entitlements or something like that, and their defence is, I did nothing illegal. So, it might be completely unjustified in any moral sense. It might be an abuse of what was designed to operate itself. But it's within the law. It's not my fault. Change the law if you want me to behave differently. It's not leadership. That's self-protecting and hiding behind the rules. Okay. The other thing to say here is that um, do no harm is not the same as love. Confucius apparently uh, came out with never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. It's kind of like do not do unto others what you would like them not to do unto you. It's the negative expression of the golden rule. But it's fundamentally different in its impact in actual fact. In practical terms I heard someone say it's as different as saying I'm not going to bomb you is to, I'm going to build you a hospital. Now which one of those would you prefer? (laughs) I'm not going to hit you in the face, I'm going to take you out for a meal. So doing no harm is a good starting point, but it's not the same as doing love. And we see in the priest and the Levite, they're sticking to the rules. They've got guidelines for how to behave. They want to fulfil all righteousness according to the way it has been written they're kind of protecting themselves in their community and they're not doing that which is love in that fulsome sense. And then the the guy comes along and in this story, it's it's such an outrageous example of generosity, isn't it? I mean, who ever heard of anybody picking up a stranger, paying for their accommodation, patching them up, and then leaving their credit card so that whatever the expense, just, you know... It's an outrageous story, isn't it? And we we feel the outrageousness of it. And yet Jesus says, this is how we become the inheritors of eternal life, by doing this kind of neighbourly activity. Sometimes we think of eternal life as a status conferred upon us which really comes into play at the end of our mortal life. You know, we, we kind of want to cover the base so that when we shuffle off our mortal coil we'll be welcomed into the pearly gates and all that kind of thing and that's fair enough, again most of us, if there be a hell don't want to end up there um, so I, that's a fully understandable interest in that um, outcome for ourselves but the verb to inherit is an interesting one to be used here it functions much like when when we say someone's come into some money. Have you heard that expression? Yeah, she came into some money when her parents died. It's not that she got some money, she came into some money. The money was so vast and big it, it held her, it enveloped her kind of thing. She came into it. The inheritance is bigger than the person who's inheriting it in some way. And we do, we come into an inheritance because... Of the nature of a line of history, it's been passed down from generation to generation, and you're coming into that line, and so you're becoming part of something much bigger than yourself. So to inherit eternal life is to come into eternal life, come into a culture, an inheritance, a way of eternal life, a way of living that is eternal, that is always true, always good, always valuable, and lives forever. We don't hold it, it holds us. And when we understand that kind of life, and none of us understands it fully, but it's a journey that we go deeper into, I think, we hear the call that everyone is potentially our neighbour. The whole world is our neighbour. Does that mean we've got to leave our credit card for everybody? What's going on with that? This is perhaps the most troubling aspect of Jesus' story. Whoever we relate to in a neighbourly way can be counted as our neighbour. So effectively that means, potentially, every person you ever come across can be your neighbour. And you have that opportunity to respond in a neighbourly way. It shifts the law from being an absolute boundary for our behaviour and responsibility to being a launching pad into life. So it doesn't say do this much and you've done enough. It says there's opportunity to do all kinds of things if you want to, if you care to. There's an inherent call here to love everyone. It's not simply a passive do no harm to anyone kind of call. Where we see a need and have a capacity to respond there there is the opportunity to become a neighbour. Now if you're thinking well that's just too hard I hear, I hear and that just makes me tired Well, I get that as well. But when you think about it for a minute we don't really want life to be clear finite and manageable. That resembles death more than life. I mean death is really clear it's un- unambiguous it's finite, it's finished there's edges to it and it's manageable. We're all going to ace that part I'm sure. The dying part we'll all get it right. Life is often full of mystery. It has elements of the infinite and it's always drawing us beyond ourselves, beyond what we thought we were capable of. That's where we start to enter into the fullness of life and I think the dynamics of eternal life that Jesus spoke so much about and demonstrated in his lifestyle. When we are called by things we barely understand to places we do not yet know to attend to tasks we feel ill-equipped to manage, that's life. I mean, that is, that's most of my life. Going in response to a call, I, I can barely understand it, but I feel compelled to places I'm not sure where it's going to take me to do things I don't know if I can handle them yet or not. That is eternal life. This is where we're able to respond in love to whomever we meet along the way because we don't have a preset boundary about all those sorts of things. Uh, We don't act as authority figures but as servants who offer the eternal life that we also have been offered and come into and we share what we have freely been given, we freely give. So I get that most of us, a lot of the time, like things to be clear, finite and manageable. Uh, Again, this gives us a great sense of agency and competency in life and they're important things, particularly as we're growing up. We want to do what's right, we want to satisfy the demands of the task and be correct and all those kinds of things. But we also want to live, don't we? We really want to live, to come alive. And that means entering into the mysterious the infinite and the beyond-our-capacity-to-manage kind of world. Not as those afraid of what we might find in that world, but as those determined to offer whatever we can, whenever we can, to be a blessing to whoever we can. This is loving our neighbour. This is eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, your stories undo us and call us in places that at times feel quite terrifying. And yet we know that you did speak of eternal life and you demonstrated eternal life and you call us into it. Give us the faith to shift our values to trust you and to follow you, that we might be the blessing you have called us and created us to be in all that we do, in your precious name. Amen.